0: While many have uttered the words, the workforce system is broken, few have offered concrete, well-thought-out solutions to the problem. On this episode of Hardly Working, I'm joined by Scott Lincecumbe, Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute and author of a recently published book, Empowering the New American Worker. We discuss how to improve training and employment as well as expanding access to jobs for one of the hardest to employ populations, individuals with criminal records. Scott Linscombe, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's great. We've we've been Twitter acquaintances now for a year maybe. Uh and you are you are one of my absolute favorite Twitter Twitter personalities um uh in terms of both substance and style. So it's it's great to get a chance to chat with you. Um I always ask at the beginning, I, I want to know, and I want my audience to know who we're talking to and not just uh, your name, but your, a little bit of your background. Can you talk a little bit about how you became the person you are today?
1: Well, sure. Um, I am now Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute. Um, I actually started my uh, my career in policy as an intern at the Cato Institute in 1998. Uh, and then I realized, um, wow, everybody in think tank land is very poor. I need to go to law school. So I abandoned uh, being a research assistant at Cato in 2001, went to law school at the University of Virginia, go Hoos, uh, and then uh, practiced international trade law for a couple decades, um, essentially uh, building my golden parachute so that I could then semi-retire into the field of policy and do what I'm doing today. Um, so that's kind of my general background. Um, although I've realized that being wonk is not nearly as leisurely as I thought it was going to be, I I'm still working very hard. Um, I'm told that's because, uh, I'm a type a OCD workaholic. Um, but, um, I don't know, that's, that's a armchair diagnosis. <laughs>
0: um, so, uh, libertarian you, you know you're at cato uh libertarian institute mm-hmm. you have a senior position yeah which means that you have to be a true believer in uh libertarianism yeah and libertarians are uh by definition people who are um quite independent and yeah. self-directed and um but i'm curious. Uh, uh did did you uh, emerge into this world without a belly button or do you have um family and and mentors who helped shape you um into your in your, in your
1: work. Yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm definitely a bit of nature and nurture there. Uh, I compared to my brother, for example, uh, I am the independent one. Uh, I was the kid who at uh, 12 or 13 years old was trying to get babysitting, babysitting gigs around the neighborhood so I could have my own cash. Uh, I started working when I, the minute I turned 15, which Texas allowed back then, uh, because I, I wanted to be, I wanted my own money and so I could do what I wanted. Um, and, then worked basically every year of the rest of my life um, and that being trying to be independent. Um, I uh, paid my way through law school and most of college. Parents helped a little bit um, and really have just always had that independent streak uh, in me. Um, but uh there's also a lot of nurture along the way. Um, my parents are both transplants uh into Texas, but they have embraced the Texas ethos entirely and very much raised me uh to fend for myself, um whether it was you know doing laundry before I could basically reach the uh, laundry knobs um or uh doing chores around the house or or whatever it is. Uh, my parents were always big into that as well um and then I think the nurturing actually continued throughout college, law school, and my early career in law, I've, I've always joked that if you want to turn anybody into being a libertarian, have them practice uh, international trade law for a couple of years before the Department of Commerce, uh, and they'll suddenly be a libertarian because that's that's basically uh, the Kafka-esque level of hell, I don't know which one, but it's way, way down there in terms of realizing how government actually works, um, and it's uh, it's pretty, pretty uh, toe curling experience Yeah, yeah, designed to fail. Right. Right. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, certainly, and then finally, you know, since we're here to talk about, uh, my book, uh, my book was a bit of a personal thing as well. Um, I when I moved from I'm a I'm a remote worker, I've been a remote worker since 2010, another kind of independent side I, I like working just from my house uh, and, and tend to do it pretty well. Um but moving from Washington, D.C. to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I now live, um having to uh navigate the North Carolina bar rules, even though I was practicing international trade law for a New York-based firm and multinational clients, um, having to deal with all the housing stuff and the small business stuff and the remote work taxation stuff and on and on and on, I realized that um, there are a million little things that stand in the way of American workers like me or those that weren't blessed to have the backing of a multinational law firm bankrolling that type of stuff. Um, there are a million things that get in our way and prevent us from doing what we want to do, living where we want to live, being the type of worker we want to live, uh, be, excuse me, whether it's an independent contractor or a salaried employee that really uh, f- do a lot of that for no good reason. Um, you know, that, that it, based on tons of economic literature, that's just, it's not that this is, um, really, really sound. Everybody agrees that these things are, are standing in our way. Uh, and that for good reasons, it's just, a lot of it was just kind of vestiges of a bygone era or, uh, things that have kind of built up on top, on top of each other and have calcified the system and kind of the way we think about benefits because it's just, very antiquated, um, how we think about I think education in a lot of ways, very antiquated, um, and so the goal of the book in a lot of ways is uh, my personal jihad against a lot of the things that I personally experienced because again i I was lucky, I had a lot of backing, I had an army of of well trained tax lawyers who could figure out how uh, a firm could could navigate those types of rules, but normal a lot of normal folks don't have that. And and I think that when, especially when it comes to things like licensing barriers for middle skill jobs, it's just it's just crazy how hard a lot of places make it for people just to do the type of work they want to do.
0: We had a uh, I had an interview with Leah Palagashvili, you probably know over at Mercatus. Yeah, not last week we were talking. and um, we, so we were in some of these themes about, you know, the rigidities of the system and the alternatives. You know, there are, it's not like we don't have good alternatives. So what's your diagnosis? Why is it so difficult to do what is obviously, appears obviously the right thing to do in order uh, to foster the kind of flexibility that you're talking about?
1: Yeah I mean I think some of it is just good old fashioned bureaucratic inertia right that it's tough to turn around the battleship um so you know thinking about remote work and remote work taxation issues for example um it's not that the 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 way that we tax workers um it's not that it's intentionally designed to keep them in a certain place or in a certain job but that's tends to be the end result or it tends to just simply discourage remote work now why well the association of cpas wrote a, a letter to the treasury department basically just saying because your rules are based on how people worked in 19, the 1980s, and you need to just update the rules and just give us – we don't care what you decide, but you need to update the guidance on things like how to tax fringe benefits or commuting expenses and all this type of stuff, right? Um, and I think – so I think a, uh, in, in a lot of areas, uh, it's it's just – it takes a while for stuff to change. Um, bureaucrats and politicians are risk averse, and it it's it, – you know, we're, it's going to just take a while. Um, yeah. however, I mean, there, some of it's yeah. just
0: vested interest too, right?
1: I mean, well, are, that's what right? I was about to say. Yeah. I, so oh, okay. the, I yeah. was, I, sorry, I was, that was, you just ruined my transition. Uh-huh. No, that was say, Cause <laughs> there's, a, there's a, less, no, there's a less benign part of this. And that is, like you said, there's vested interests. You know, um, I think a th- one of the themes throughout my book is that, um, there's a lot of protectionism and I don't mean international trade protectionism. I just mean protectionism baked into the current system, whether it is occupational licensing or housing regulation and NIMBYism or, uh, by American rules tied up in our infrastructure projects. Um, and you can go down the child, certain childcare, uh, regulations, which are also baked into licensing. Um, you can go down the list and in case after case after case, there's somebody on the other side who's deriving some sort of, uh, rent from the current system. And even though I think you can get a, a wide range of folks on the left, right and center to agree that the current system is messed up, particularly on things like housing and licensing. And I think criminal justice as well. Very hard uh, to break the logjam, given the classic, you know, concentrated benefits and diffuse costs of of public choice theory and the rest. It's just really, it's really hard to kind of break through that. Um, so, I, I I wish I had a an easy answer for how to break it, but you know, that's what we've been struggling with for for basically ever in in policy reform.
0: Yeah, the the rents are too damn high. Yeah, um, uh, and really hard to get people to give up uh, that security on the promise that hey, you you might actually be able to do better. Uh, yeah, if if you if you were willing to give up a little bit of security.
1: Yeah, and I think that's another thing. There's certainly a psychological element to a lot of this. I mean, I have I do not for a second. Um, would I not for a second would I claim that the if we, if all the reforms in this book were and ent- were undertaken that everybody would have a cushier, uh, more secure existence? I mean, in fact, in a lot of ways, it is uh, creating—I uh, wouldn't say insecurity, but it's a different a different approach to the system because it's one that that embraces labor market fluidity that understands that hey. Your ability to switch a job is just as important as your – keeping your current job, for your lifetime earnings, for your ability to have a productive and meaningful career. And so, yeah, you know, you actually, to, to achieve that, you have to give up a little bit of the protection on the front end so you can you can win on the back end. That's a very hard argument to sell. I mean, that's one of the reasons why trade protectionism remains so seductive, right? People fear change. They, they, are, they worry about disruption, and it's hard to just say no, no. You need to, you need to jump. Um. So I, I fully understand, you know, the kind of psychological barrier to a lot of this too.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's not like it's new, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is Adam Smith had the same observation that we're much more, ex, we're, we are far more focused on what we might lose than what we could gain, right? Um, out of, uh, any, any situation. So as you pointed, as you alluded to here. This is, uh, you have not written this entire book. Right. You are the editor of this book. Yeah. Uh, you have your own contribution to it, certainly. Um, but I'm curious, um, when you think about the, to- the, the body of the whole book, mm-hmm. what are the um, issues uh, that you think are the most... Uh, You know, the kind of the end of it, maybe the individual essays or the observations yeah. within those essays that are the most important things that
1: people should know. The chapter that I go to the most that I think is both important and somewhat novel is the, the one that I wrote on criminal justice. Um, the... Very few people think of criminal justice issues as labor market issues. I mean, you know, some people, you, you probably do, but, uh, you know, when you talk about criminal justice policy, you, you tend to talk about some of the moral and ethical issues of, of having people locked up or, or, uh, you know, coerced into plea bargaining deals. And those things are all very important. But the chapter on criminal justice in my book, uh looks at it from the labor market perspective and says there's been a dramatic increase in the number of people in the United States with a felony record um it does not say that's a a good thing or a, a bad thing of course we libertarians would say you know a lot of this is legit over criminalization related to the drug war and other things but i don't i mean you can you can look through there there's not a, there's not much preaching libertarian preaching in this chapter instead it says that the studies uh, – new studies repeatedly show that the – simply having a record, um, whether it is an arrest or a conviction, uh, dramatically depresses labor force participation in, in employment or under – unemployment or underemployment. Um, and there's uh, – people kind of speculate as to the reasons. Um, some of it is uh, just stigma. You know, in fact, uh, the I think the study that really opened my eyes the most was the one that kind of tried to put a number on the, the number of folks who are out of the labor force, a um, number of Americans out of the labor force because of this inc- dramatic increase in felony convictions since the 1980s. And they put the number at about 1.7, 1.6 or 1.7 million workers, which is a lot. But then they added the, the really noteworthy point that was that the majority were women, not men. You know, we think right. of criminalism. As you know, uh, black men in the in the prison system, right? Uh, but it turns out that. In their work, uh, the bigger issue was women who were—they speculated—stigmatized. Right? Say you're uh, a, a young mom who was had some indiscretions in her youth, as many of us have, um, and you had kids. The kids are gone. You want to—you want to get back into the labor market. You realize that you have a uh, some conviction back from when you were 18 and, and and wild. And yeah, you know what? You don't really want to deal with. With having to disclose that, particularly if you're in, you know, kind of a smaller town where people talk, right? Um, and the other thing that happens is that maybe you got a job, um, and this is any not men or women, you got a job, and you, you really don't have to go through that process again. So you just stay in the job and you remain kind of underemployed because you don't want to deal with that. So um, that I think is a really ripe area for policy reform when we don't talk about. And the other thing is that there's simple solutions. And the solution that we that we propose primarily is one for expungement. That, mm-hmm. um, after a certain number of years of good behavior, um, three to five years, you know, they basically after three years, if you don't commit any other crimes, you're, you tend to be in the clear. Um, your record just goes away you don't have to you don't have to go to the office and apply for it because nobody does that. We have that already, nobody does it it just that's it it's gone and so there's no more um having to deal with that stigma or some of the other stuff that that g- goes along with the record uh, and again, the initial research out there shows that that has a pretty pretty substantial Improvement in not just, of course, labor market improvements, but in recidivism. So people get jobs, they stay out of trouble, um, in mobility. Uh, so all these kind of good knock on effects as well. So I think that one's one where I'm. I think there's there's not as much written, and I hope that people will, will pay attention to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary um, that you, you know, you're pointing out that uh, that this is a problem that especially affects women, which the reason that's extraordinary is that there are far, far fewer women right. in who have been convicted of crimes and gone away to prison, that it's just a much less common thing for women. So to say that on that smaller population, we have a bigger problem, uh, that is a yeah. really critical uh, insight. And I totally agree with you. The data is absolutely clear on this. I mean, it's usually in the first few months. If people are going to reoffend. uh, it's usually in the first weeks or months right. of their, of their release. And that, you know, it, and, and once you've been out for a little while, you know, a lot of people learn the lesson, right? They, they, they actually do only about half, you know, we used to say two thirds were going back to prison, but the more recent data says it's really about half um, of people. So, that's still a lot. That's still yeah. too many, but n- not having to worry about half the people is a, is a important thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um,
0: and should it should reduce anxiety even about even without the expungement, people should, the employers ought to be. A little more willing, I think, in this labor labor market, they hopefully yeah. are a little more willing.
1: Yeah, one of the silver linings of this labor market, right, is that employers are willing to look past convictions a bit more. Um, but it really is um, when you when you think about it, about the num- the millions of Americans that have a criminal record, and that we seem to be going out of our way in terms of not just expungement, but also in denying driver's licenses, in occupational licensing restrictions. We seem to be going out of our way to encourage people to commit crimes again. You know, yeah. like like it's just and obviously I don't think that's the intent. Um but Oh I, I let's let's dwell on
0: that point for just a minute <laughs> because this is a conversation that I have with your colleague Clark Neely all the time. I I you know my my view of it is that Actually, we're getting exactly the system that we want, um, which is if you commit a crime in American society, uh, you probably ought to be punished forever, either (laughs) formally or informally, right? Like, uh, if you've gone away to prison, you probably did something bad, and that needs to, you know, you deserve whatever happens to you after that.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Uh, and, And I think that's a real, that's a cultural problem that gets reflected in policy, but it's a... It, it, it is, you know, this idea that people have paid their debt it seems to be all lip service uh, uh, in this. And I, I, I don't think it's an accident. Um, on the employment side, uh, you know, employers, the employers I've talked to, and we did some focus grouping on this back in the early 2000s, try to get it better. When I was at the Labor Department, you know, why, what's the deal? Like, we didn't understand. We understand. But what? Tell us in your own words, and it was always the liability problem yeah. um, that that employers pointed to. Um, I like the expungement idea because that actually solves, in some right. ways, the liability challenge that that employers have. If they knowingly hire somebody who's got a felony record, they're on the hook um, for that exactly. decision.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I think this seems to be a. I wish, you know, there's a lot of bipartisanship on criminal justice, but it, it doesn't seem to extend into this labor market stuff. And I'm hoping, you know, there's a, a little more attention to it going forward. Yeah. Know, it'd, be, it'd be great. Um,
0: yeah. No, I, I, I think it's a great idea. Um, it needs to be pursued. And if, at least for the last 20 years, it's been one of those policy areas that hasn't been frozen. It's yeah, been able we've been able to make change um, because there's been something of a consensus to move forward with it. Um, I'm a little concerned that that might be breaking down. But yeah, I am. Um, yeah. um, okay, what else besides uh, yeah. you? You, pra- you praised your own chapter here, but who no, else?
1: No, well, I really wouldn't pick a single chapter. I think it's more the chapters that that go together thematically. Um, and particularly when it comes to, uh, the obvious ways we can save working families a lot of money, um, you know, and that goes to, uh, childcare, uh, it goes to, um, essential goods, uh, cl- food, clothing, shelter, um, and it goes to, um, transportation and, you know, energy and so forth. So, you know, I think that's another area where when we talk about pro worker policy, um, it's not only is it always big government stuff and protectionist stuff, um, but nobody ever thinks of working families as consumers, or they rarely do. Right. And if they do think of working families as consumers, they just want to give them more money to consume stuff. Right. Economic implications of subsidizing demand and keeping supply restricted, notwithstanding. Right. It's like yeah, and, uh, and, and completely on display right now. Yeah. Right. right. We're just going to cut. Yeah. It's just a fight to cut people checks. And and, you know, in the child care space, um, it, I it, it boggles the mind that we're just going to give we want to give everybody more money, but we're not going to fix any of the supply side restrictions. So what's going to happen, right? Well, we're just going to have higher prices. I mean, that's, it's not difficult. Meanwhile, there's all this great research that shows that there are simple common sense regulatory reforms related to staff to child ratios or home-based businesses um, that would uh, reduce childcare costs by thousands of dollars. The very thousands of dollars we want to give parent, the federal government to, or certain federal politicians want to give Parents, right, and does this in a more egalitarian and market-friendly way, um, and we don't we, we we don't talk about that. And then, of course, um, uh, trade has to come into this. We talk about uh, we put idiotic import taxes on cheap children's shoes, on clothing, on food, on energy, on vehicles, and all this stuff. You know, this is more concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, right? The benefits to the protected few uh, workers, um, which If there even is an industry, we don't even have a shoe industry, but, uh, they, they, they certainly are going to get concentrated benefits, but the death by a thousand cuts for American parents, you know, spending an extra hundred bucks a year on butter, spending an extra two hundred bucks a year on clothing and footwear, spending an extra five hundred dollars every few years on an automobile or whatever. All that adds up over time. And, uh, and then, uh, Political class in Washington goes. Parents can't get by on a single income. How did this happen? And and you know the libertarians and the, we're sitting in the corner going.
0: Duh, duh. Yeah, we can tell you. We can tell you why, why that is. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, which reminds me, you've got uh, and we're almost out of time here, but we you've got this extraordinary new Twitter uh, bracket championship yeah. going on. I th- I think we really have to talk about this. Okay, sure. Uh, why don't you Why don't you tell me about the, because it goes to this theme of. Uh, the, the thousand cuts. Right, uh, right. Uh, right. That, that yeah, so
1: so um, we I'm a, I'm a big sports fan and have always enjoyed uh, the NCA tournament, even though as a UVA fan, uh, it's a frequently tragic experience, although 2019 was makes it all worth it. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks have over the years um, looked at the tournament as a time to have a elimination style or eliminate tournament tournament. Style elimination uh, bracket. I, so I,
0: I have to interrupt and just point yeah. out that our producer Hunter Dixon is a graduate of Furman and, oh, and, and Hunter. Yeah, that's and that's Dude. really quite sad. Uh, so. <laughs> Well,
1: look, I go ahead. Sorry. Now we're, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having palpitations. Uh, (laughs) I had to watch that game in the middle of a meeting on zoom and my, I, I, when it, when that last second thing happened, you could actually, I wish there was a video of it because you could, you could actually, you could do the old Simpsons move where they record and you can see my heart imploding (laughs) there, uh, you know, in slow-mo over and over. Um, Anyway, so we we decided to have our own little tournament, um, and and to both entertain, um, but also to highlight where the how much protectionism actually is still in U.S. trade policy. And so we picked 32 of the worst U.S. trade policies, everything from stuff you might have heard of, like the Jones Act, to stuff you probably have never heard of, like free trade agreement rules of origin for automobiles. And we put them uh, in a head-to-head tournament and let the users uh, the vote. And uh, our tech wizards over at Cato actually created a standalone website that allows people to go in and vote in these rounds. And we're now in the uh we're in the sour 16 round um and uh we're heading towards the championship in a couple couple weeks just you know it takes just a couple minutes you you click through not even a couple minutes but but the but the real fun i think of this uh beyond just Clicking around and doing these tournaments is that uh, for every policy, you can click on it and get a single paragraph summary of what it's all about. And then you can click, dig, uh, click more and dig deeper into the research. Um, And I hopefully it not only uh, educates folks, which is always, you know, it's what we're here for at Cato and over at AEI too, um, but also really hits home just how silly this idea is that we live in this free market libertarian paradise where, uh you know, I guess Milton Friedman and Larry Summers got uh, together in Davos in the 90s and foist free trade upon the unwitting working class, uh, which is all just a bunch of nonsense. Um, we have a ton of this protectionism still in place. It's coming back a bit even now. Uh, and the goal is to, of course, highlight that as well, teach everybody a little bit and have a little fun while we're at it.
0: That's great. Um, OK, Scott. So if people want to read more, yeah. uh, either about the book or about your your other work or just
1: where can they where can they find more about <laughs> uh, well, you or it? Yeah, three places. First, obviously, is Cato.org. Uh, you can just go to my bio page and find everything that I've almost ever written uh, there and um, you can go to the dispatch where I write a weekly column called capitalism on all things economic policy. This week's is on egg prices. So get excited, folks. Egg prices. Uh, and then, uh, finally, of course, you can find me on Twitter, whether where I'm either self promoting, um, like my new column in the Atlantic on the Jones Act, or uh, talking about really random things like daylight savings time and and nachos, both of which I have very strong feelings. He's very on.
0: passionate about very those. passionate. That's, that's true, and I I think hot sauce is another area yeah. of your of yeah, your for sure. It,
1: almost hot pepper want. season again. Very excited about it.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. Scott Lincecumbe, who is the editor of Empowering the New American Worker, Market-Based Solutions for Today's Workforce. Scott, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.